Harvey Kronberg, the Oracle of Texas politics. Um, thanks for joining us on State House. Definitely uh, a pleasure. Our viewers and listeners um, are going to really enjoy uh, this session with you. Uh, not the legislative session, but this session with you. <laughs> Nobody enjoys the well, legislative session. That's an acquired taste. Yes, it is. Um, so I guess to start off, every session, and you and I have been involved in a lot of them, I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when I met you in um, 30-something years ago, the earth had just recently cooled. <laughs> right about that time that we met, and every session that uh, we've been involved in has had its own personality. And well, let me start by saying pterodactyls are some of my oldest friends. <laughs> <laughs> How do they vote? <laughs> Wherever the meat may be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I know some people that resemble that remark. Yes. <laughs> um, so yes. Uh, you know, these personalities change. They've changed since uh, they used to be somewhat similar up through till about 2008 when the legislature completely uh, went Republican. And now they have a different personality, but again, different every session. And the things that sort of determine how members are going to vote and, you know, kind of the mood. So can you handicap this session um, on sort of the mood and what are the things they're going to be driving Members. Well, one quick correction. The uh, the legislature and all the statewides flipped in 2003. 2003. Uh, right. The Senate went uh, Republican in 95, and the House went Republican in 2003. And the last statewide office holder was Bob, uh, Democrat was Bob Bullock, who was defeated by Rick Perry. In, uh, uh, it, it was uh, actually Rick Perry versus uh, John Sharp, and Rick Perry won by 70,000 votes out of about six or seven million. So what is 2000? What am I thinking of? Am I thinking of when when uh, Tom Craddock was elected speaker? Uh, no, that was also two thousand and three. Okay, maybe uh, I just had the date wrong. Okay, yeah, two thousand. Actually, two thousand seven was the great insurrection against Tom Craddock on the House floor. Oh, okay. And then two thousand nine, yes, Joe Strauss was uh, defeated. Did the unthinkable in Texas? Defeated a um, an incumbent speaker. That's right. That and was, it was yeah. uh, the the uh, the folks that specialize in manufactured outrage. Uh, we're trying to make this a, into a Democratic coup, but it was essentially led by Republican chairman who didn't like the way the speaker was. That's exactly right. Running the, the eleven cardinals, as it, they called them, exactly back then. Yeah, I was kind of found myself in the middle of some of that for some <laughs> odd reason, and uh, there was a lot of collateral damage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that good times. Um, so, tell, tell, give me some um, some of your insight into uh, kind of this session. And what, we're, what we should be looking for. Well, first of all, it's a rebound from uh, post-COVID. Uh, last session, typically the first uh, 60 days of any legislative session, uh, you're constitutionally prohibited from doing anything substantive. Mm -hmm. And um, so that first 60 days tends to be schmoozing, uh, going to receptions, meeting each other. But it really does serve a purpose because that first 60 days is where the that particular, that session's legislative community is created. Democrats consorting with known Republicans, Republicans consorting with known Democrats, freshmen finding mentors, um, freshmen discovering that they don't represent a party, they represent a, an actual district with employers and hospitals and schools. And so that, that first 60 days uh, to the general public looks like it's um, useless. And to freshmen, they become very impatient. Yeah. 
but that's where that's where the the fabric of that particular session is created. So last session, uh, they essentially were in lockdown for the first ninety days because of COVID, and um, and it was a very contorted, twisted, and um, inflamed session. I think uh, we're the whole country is still suffering post traumatic stress syndrome, but you could see it playing out in the some of the extreme stuff that was passed in the last session. This session is defined uh, essentially by the leadership. Uh, we've got, of course, a, a, a normally high turnover in the Texas House and Texas Senate. Uh, but uh, we joke that if you're trying to figure out what uh, Governor Abbott is going to do next, tomorrow, you need to re- read yesterday's paper from Miami. Uh, because while everybody denies he's um, uh, got an eye on the presidential nomination, he is certainly playing to the Republican base and, frankly, has been afraid of the Republican base for a long time. Which leads us to the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, former radio talk show host, a man who um, uh, uh, is very ideological, uh, very punitive, and uh, controls the Senate with an iron fist, and is beloved by the Republican primary voter, Mm -hmm. which gives him enormous power since since, uh, Democrats have been so ineffectual for the last 20 years, the only election that matters is the Republican primary, and even normally sensible people. Uh, uh, that are elected state reps and state senators are always looking over their shoulder at being challenged in the Republican primary by somebody further right or somebody that can characterize them as a rhino or Republican name only. And the the lieutenant governor capitalizes on that. So he runs the Senate with an iron fist, and we can get into a little bit more about how how he he controls them. Uh, And then you have the speaker. And frankly, since... Uh, 2009, when Joe Strauss um, became speaker, and then uh, with uh, David, I'm sorry, with um, uh, Dan Patrick mm-hmm. as a state senator, David Dewhurst, um, the the lobby who really is kind of the barometer of the session of the of the cycle and the session uh, started to uh, say the only adults in the building were the Texas House of Representatives. Once upon a time, the Texas Senate, you could actually have. Uh, robust debate. Uh, people came in to defend their bills. When we were at one-party Democratic state, when the Republicans took over, you had big people with big arguments, um, and um, uh, and the Texas House was just a brawl. Yeah, which of course made it way more fun to cover than the yeah. Texas Senate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, there, it's still somewhat of a brawl in the Texas House, but uh, um, nobody believes there's any independence inside the um, in the inside the Texas Senate. Um, the, the lieutenant governor has mastered the levers of power better than anybody probably since, and maybe even including Bob Bullock. Bob Bullock, yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I was just going to ask if it's, it's reminiscent of those days. Um, maybe reminiscent on steroids. He really wow. has uh, taken it to another level. So the, that's, that's the context. But there's a joy in being back that you didn't see last session. Um, uh, there's a joy in engagement um, we have a lot of fre- Democratic and Republican freshmen who still think they represent ideologies, but by the end of the session, they're going to re- realize who they actually do represent, and then we'll find out who the true leaders going forth are going to be. But the speaker is um, proven to be more of a Joe Strauss-style speaker than than a Tom Craddock style. He wants the member, uh, uh, Strauss and Pete Laney, one of his predecessors, were notorious Lobby came in looking for help on something. They would say, "Go round up your votes," yeah. and so this is a much more the the, um, the impetus in the in the Senate. I mean, in the House is bottoms up as opposed to top down. 
The lieutenant governor, in contrast, issued a, a 30 initiatives. Only maybe a dozen had anything to do with actual governance. The rest were culture war, red meat type of things. The speaker has talked about his the, his markers are roads, energy, water, and uh, education, education, in particular teachers, and then children. And it may be because the governor and the lieutenant governor are in their 70s and and uh, kind of represent a different generation. The speaker's in his 40s with three young kids uh, and um, uh, is looking much more forward. Very conservative. I don't mean to diminish his conservatism, but... Uh, uh, if he is, if he's now learned the game of leadership, and uh, uh, a lot of people, including senators, are looking for them to put the brakes on some of the worst impulses of the Senate um, or of the legislature. So um, there is a, a joie de vivre that was missing last the previous session, and um, they're just now getting down to business. So we'll find out the level of conflict when we start having floor debate. There's no real conflict in the Senate since the lieutenant governor dominates it. So once again, the House is going to define the character of the of this legislative session. Interesting. Do you think the um, – so some of the social issues always seem to be the things, obviously, that pop up to the top. They bubble up to the top almost every session. Um, what seems to be the thing that's that's bubbling up this time? Is it uh, is it is it all the LGBTQ stuff? Is it trans? Is it the, is it is it kind of a combination of the of that with education? That piece of it. Well, the big umbrella is we're anti woke, whatever the hell that means. Oh. I have yet to hear a good definition of woke, but if you can label something as woke, damn it, we're against it. <laughs> <laughs> So that goes from... Well, DeSantis has made a whole whole year out of it. Yes, yes. And, um, uh, you know, I'm waiting for for the MAGA hats to be replaced with the anti-woke hats. But uh, (laughs) so underneath that woke umbrella is um, uh, everything from targeting transgenders or anybody that's got any um, uh, sexual identity issues, uh, whether they're children or now adults, uh, I don't think there's any. I, I'm no. I know there's no taste in the house for more abortion-related oh. issues, unless maybe yeah. it were to create some exemptions. But the lieutenant governor, I think, is going to put the kibosh on that. Um, the um, uh, critical race theory is another dog whistle that we have that uh, is being uh, used to try and attack public schools. And more dangerously for the state of Texas and the economic miracle, they're going to, they're, they're, they're attacking universities for even teaching critical, whatever critical race theory is, which it's just a little segment kind of easy to define type of thing. And I joke that they're, they're essentially uh, confusing critical thinking, which we do want with critical race theory, which arguably we could dispose of and it wouldn't make any difference. But that leads to the whole critical race thing has led led to book banning in public education. Um, It has led the lieutenant governor to call for the end of tenure for professors. And I'll go back to John Connolly. John Connolly was the first governor that I'm aware of that said you can't have a world-class economy without a world-class higher education system. As soon as they start uh, trying to do thought control, which is essentially what they, at least the lieutenant, lieutenant governor is advocating uh, in terms of having very limited curricula, very limited teaching, uh, the, the flagship universities that it's taken generations to build are going to start dismantling or dissembling. Um, so to me, that is the most potent That's the one. thing uh, about um, this. Uh, we've got anti-ESG, which is, of course, ESG is... Uh, yeah. 
uh, what is it? Environment, yeah. um, social, and governmental. governmental. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the governor's even gone so far as to issue a directive uh, so that it, we can't promote diversity, which puts him pretty much in the 19th century, not the 21st century. The irony, of course, for that was the um, uh, within the week that he put that had his chief of staff issue that directive to state agencies. Forbes magazine, that that bastion of liberalism, is out promoting a book on DE on, on diversity and inclusion, mm. uh, and for the corporate uh, suite, uh, uh, C suites, and uh, and corporate employees because we have this intense competition uh, for uh, 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 workers now, whether educated or un- uh, or service, and um, uh, a friendly well, uh, uh, workspace is an, uh, an important part of the, the corporate culture that lures people to come and, more importantly, to stay. Yeah. Uh, so you've got Forbes magazine essentially in contrast with Governor Greg Abbott and Governor DeSantis. It's, it's, a, it, it's, such a, it's a fascinating subject. Um, I, I happen to have, you know, uh, two boys, one's 24 and one's 19. One's, in, one's right now in college. The other one is, is just out. Um, he's out of UT and he's getting ready to go into uh, – the naval aviation I told you about, um, headed for, you know, headed for NASA and both smart guys, um, grew up in a, a I, I would say, a pretty conservative, uh, household. And I don't, I don't you know, I, I just, just generally conservative household. But so I, uh, you know, and I don't ever preach to them about anything. I let them have their own, you know, they can develop their own thoughts about how they how they see the world, but it's interesting on the school issue. So I, I find myself as as someone who's been very involved in their day to day, you know, schooling over the last you know years, um, uh, trying to understand uh, how to deal with that issue because now they're out. Thank God. They're out. <laughs> they're, <laughs> not I, a, they're in a different battlefield. They're now. in a different battlefield, but I don't have to worry about high school and, and middle school. But, you know, so, I, you know, as as much as some of these issues seem, um, seem to be, uh, I guess, to some petty, I guess, you know, I always looked at it, and this is going back before all this, this the, the woke stuff came about. I always felt like that in the schools that they should stick to those things that they're supposed to be teaching. Nobody is a psychologist, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle school and, and high school to teach anything about, you know, social values and all those kinds of things. I think that's supposed, in my opinion, just my opinion, mm-hmm. okay, should be, t- should be teaching those at home. I mean, so that they don't go out in the world and do things they shouldn't do, right? And I guess the argument would be um, – uh, that that if they're not being taught appropriate social values or or whatever that they, they can be corrected at the at the at the high school and middle school level, I don't know if that's to be that's that's true. I guess I'm I guess I'm kind of simple when it comes to that. Is that when you when we're spending money and I think we've never spent enough money and really funded our school system the way that we should fund it. I do agree with that. And teachers are not paid. I know a lot of teachers, and they're never paid enough. And it's really sad because that's the, you know, we pay entertainers and we pay sports stars and everybody else to get lots and lots of money because that's the thing we value. But the people that are with our children like every day, all day long, mm-hmm. don't get don't get much in the way of incentives to want to do this for the rest of their for their whole career. But I think that they they want to focus on 
at least the ones I know, want to focus on things that they're there to teach, the academics. Mm-hmm. And well, not first all of all, other stuff. I should mention that 77% of teachers in a recent poll said they were looking for other employment. Yes. They're either underpaid or they're now supposed to be uh, security guards. Uh, they've got uh, enormous mandates from the state as to what they are and are not allowed to. Uh, and there is an impulse to criminalize teachers that do the wrong thing. Uh, so uh, we've we've devalued the whole, pro- while we're giving a lot of lip service to raising teacher pay, we've really devalued that profession. And there's a certain, I, I tend to agree personally that, uh, the, that what public school is about is the mechanics of reading, writing, and arithmetic with a, a nod towards the beginning of critical thinking. But mm-hmm. it's the mechanics that you have to come out with. Um, those are irreplaceable. And yeah. you can't go any further if you don't have those mechanics. But I also think that uh, the, the the culture of Texas and the United States should not be whitewashed. That doesn't mean that it uh, we should be emphasizing right. um, the Texas Rangers uh, notoriously going down to the border and, and just firing into crowds, which is part of our Texas history. The, the whole impact of the Civil War and um, um, lynching was a, a, a fundamental part of our history, so much so that... Uh, we had to pass laws against it, and I don't believe to this day there is a federal law against lynching. Hmm. Um, really? Yes. So uh, you don't want this to be the centerpiece of anybody's education, but if you're going to have kids come out of, of public education, they need to know reading, writing, arithmetic, some elements of logical and critical thinking, and um, just at least a bird's eye view of some of the conflicts that have defined the state and the country. I think part of what happens in, and of course, you and I being involved in politics for so long, I mean, we, we sort of know this, um, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of our listeners and, and viewers um, may not maybe understand the dynamics. They see it. They probably think that they're right to, to think this, but it's part of the problem is um, I think with the whole, the whole public education system is you have teachers who my, my mother was a teacher um, and then you have teachers' unions, and the really the two aren't the same at all. And and I I think that the teachers' unions getting in pitched battle with um, with Republicans is you know you're you kind of you know once you poke you know the bear you're going to get the you know you're going to get it. So and I think maybe some of that is is uh, bleeding into this. Well, debate. that's that's a national argument. Uh, if you go to New Jersey, the teachers union is actually a union. There's a shop steward in the high school. The teachers go to talk, if they have a problem, they go to the shop steward. They really? don't actually go to the principal. We really don't have unions in Texas. No. We have trade associations. So we just get the we just get the oh, the, the backflow from yeah, the everything happening. From, the backlash from the from national, national argument. Yeah. Yeah. No, the um, there, there's no collective bargaining. There's uh, no redress through any of the teachers' associations. There's no disciplining members. They do collect dues, and uh, they tend to obviously contribute to Democrats uh, because they perceive Democrats. Well, but but having said that. Uh, there's a group called Texas Parent Pack, which is yeah. a, a group of mothers out there, very pro-public education. Charles, very is that anti- Charles Butzker? Uh, no, that's a Raise Your Hand. This is Carolyn Boyle who started Texas Parent Pack. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, it was just housewives essentially um, uh, creating phone rings and call, uh, phone circles and calling their friends to support candidates. And they've, they, uh, they've kind of defined um, uh, supporting pro-public education Republicans as well as uh, as Democrats. Um, and that really has been one of the dividing lines inside the Republican Party. We had, back in 2005, 
a guy named Jim Leiniger, a billionaire mm-hmm. out of San Antonio, Kinetic Concepts, who created the Texas Public Policy Foundation and essentially funded an assault on five very prominent Republican uh, incumbents in the Texas House because they were pro-public education, anti uh, did not support vouchers or what you might call school choice. Uh, he, he, he won two of his five contests. He put millions into this yeah, to beat these five, won the two. Um, and ironically, there was un- only one voucher vote that year, and they both walked the vote, <laughs> which meant they left the floor when the vote came up. Yeah. So they, they uh, did not have to vote one way or the other because vouchers were unpopular in the district, even if they're, they had been funded by a pro-voucher uh, philanthropist. Yeah, that wasn't a very good uh, investment on his part. No. But they, we, I think, vou- and vouchers are are back again. That's um, actually the governor's putting seems to be putting most of his political capital into vouchers. Yeah, um, it, which is ironic. He's going to typically the Senate will pass out a ham sandwich, kind of like a grand jury. Um, they'll whatever the lieutenant governor tells them. I mean, this is non negotiable. He instructs. It really is that regimented over there. So. Wow. Even you've got rural senators who will, won't have the cojones, even though it's going to hurt their school district, uh, to vote against vouchers. So a bill is going to come out of the Senate. It's going to go to the House. Typically, the House has been the firewall to prevent it. And I'm not really going to take a position, but I will say that you've got a, a finite pool of money um, and no voucher program is going to leave that pool of money untouched. So anything that gets siphoned off for these scholarships or whatever they, we may call them mm-hmm. is less money to divide among the rest of the public schools. And um, say out in Pampa, Texas, to get to a, school, a tiny little town out in West Texas, it may take an hour and a half uh, a school bus ride to go to school, hour and a half to come back from school. Friday night football is the epicenter of the community. Uh, they have a very difficult time luring teachers to those schools. Um, and anything that siphons any money out of that pool, inev- unless they're going to create a separate pool of money, uh, anything that siphons money out of that uh, uh, is is going to inevitably uh, reduce the pool of money left for public schools. Well, the governor is going around to all these small rural districts um, and trying to get House members to stand beside him. Um, uh, uh, saying they endorse it, and he will tell them inevitably that if you support me, if you take this, what is a hard vote, I will be there for you in your primary. Now, having said that, in his first term 12 years ago, uh, in his first legislative session, he was advocating for pre-K, which gave the Republican right heartburn because they called it brainwashing, babysitting. Uh, They did not see any value in pre-K, just more government intrusion. Um, but all the sciences pretty much repudiates that, that, that argument. Well, the governor then called, we're at the critical point in this, uh, uh, in this debate, the governor calls the Republic house Republican caucus down to the, uh, agriculture museum, which happens to be the only room in the building that does not have video cameras. In it. <laughs> um, and he promises them that anybody that takes that hard vote on his behalf, uh, for pre-K, uh, he will be there in their primary. He wasn't. Hmm. He um, he they couldn't they couldn't get their calls returned. Uh, now this was you know a, a decade ago, which is a lifetime in politics. Yeah. So we have half the Texas House that doesn't remember or recall essentially that he betrayed his promise. But that is part of the calculation that is. Let me simply say, my publication is going to at least make sure that whatever vote you cast, you know that you're not going to have help from the governor going forth. Uh, at least that's been that was what he demonstrated historically when it came to something like that. 
so um, um, ironically, the conflict is going to come uh, if it if if the governor typically a determined governor and a lieutenant governor will get what they want. Um, but I, I think this 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 one may still fail uh, once House members become aware of the fact that they're that cast that vote there on their own. So, you know, speaking to the lieutenant governor and the governor um, and the speaker, um, you know, how how well are they working together on those <laughs> kinds of issues? I, th- I think, I mean, obviously, you know, we kind of know individually in each silo how they how, how each of these leaders are work. But how do how are the three of them working together? Uh, the governor has historically been afraid of the lieutenant governor because the lieutenant governor dominates the Republican primary. And so much so that Governor Abbott did not even enter the state Republican convention uh, held last summer. They had a reception off campus in Houston at five o'clock. There was a mile long line and 105 degree temperature. People were actually fainting uh, from from the heat. Uh, but he did not want to go into the uh, convention because, like John Cornyn, he would have probably been booed as not being sufficiently conservative. Yeah. John Cornyn was booed for 25 out of the 30 minutes that he spoke, whereas Dan Patrick got standing ovations. Yeah. Um, and that, whatever you may think, that is the that's the the Republican primary. 750,000 votes uh, out of whether we're a state of 31 million, uh, 1.3 million typically vote in the Republican primary, which means 700,000 people actually control the state of Texas. Yeah. Uh, so the, the governor has been historically afraid of the lieutenant governor. Uh, the, uh, lieutenant governor has, uh, his, his, the growth of his power and his dis- disciplining of adversaries has now become legendary. Um, uh, the speaker is, um, what usually what happens is two, uh, two sessions defined by an alliance between two out of the two three. out of the three. Right. And so the alliance, this session will be the governor and the lieutenant, uh, the governor and the speaker. Um, the speaker, I think now the governor, by the way, lead, vetoed the legislative budget somewhat gratuitously. And I would argue in an adolescent temper tantrum last session, um, which impacted not the members. The members mostly have their own income. It, it, it impacted staff and infrastructure. Um, so the the uh, the uh, speaker goes into this session very clear dot clear eyed that the governor is a free agent and that guarantees are not necessarily um, a viable going forward. Um, he knows that the lieutenant governor has already called him the worst speaker in Texas that he's ever met, which he also said about Joe Strauss, um, <laughs> but. Um, uh, so they're adversaries. They are. They are whatever alliances they make are alliances of convenience or necessity. Um, so they don't work well together. Um, I, I would argue that the governor, the governor, well, they all have excellent staffs. Um, uh, yeah, there is. There's some great people over there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but the people who lead the lead the legislative session um, are adversarial, and typically, I tell people. Civilians out there, the world is divided into civilians and combatants, and the civilians think that it's Democrat versus Republican. It's not. It's House versus Senate. And the House members expect their speaker to fight off the the Senate, especially some of the more extreme initiatives that have come out of the Senate. Um, and uh, once upon a time, the senators expected the their presiding officer to do the same, but the presiding officer has no constraints. Uh, he... Um, uh, the way a presiding officer gets his power is 
it's granted by rule, not by constitution. So um, at any given time, 16 senators could put him in his place. They just haven't demonstrated a will to do that so far. Yeah, you could do it once, but you may not be able to get a chance to do it again. Well, they took uh, David Dewhurst out of the um, out of the chair, uh, lieutenant governor in the 2000s. Yeah, took him out of the chair for he the was, last six weeks. He was kind of, of uh, wounded at by that point, wasn't yes. he? I mean, so he had some. Yeah, that, I remember that. Um, they didn't do it publicly, and over in the House, they're having a very public insurrection to try and remove Speaker Craddock from the the uh, chair. The Senate said, we're not going to, uh, that's very undignified. We're not going to do what the House is doing. So the caucus met and they decided, um, uh, the the, uh, Democratic caucus leader, the Republican caucus leader, and the uh, Senate finance chair, who was a Republican, went in to tell the Governor Dewhurst that uh, he was out of the chair. He could open the session. He could close the session. uh, But he would not be in the chair during the session because they were very unhappy with the way he was running the institution. That would be unthinkable today. Well, I could construct a possible case. Yeah, that'd, but, be, uh, that'd be tough. I mean, the things were, yeah, and and the and the entire legislative body was in turmoil at that point because mm-hmm. the House was also. Mm-hmm. I I remember that session very well. Extraordinary and, historical uh, session on so many levels. Believable that mm-hmm. you know you're sitting there watching, you know from the, from the gallery your bill. And you know you only have a certain amount of time, and every thirty minutes or so, someone goes to the back mic and decides that they're going to try to, you know, take, you know, uh, Speaker Craddock out. And so you go through the whole process, and then you go through the counting the votes, and then you're well. Actually, the um, the uh, it's called a motion to vacate the chair, and it's a privilege motion, which means according to House rule and Senate rules. They're compelled to recognize you for a privilege motion. It's not discretionary. Right. Well, of course, Speaker Craddock refused to recognize <laughs> them for a motion to vacate the chair. Uh, so, um, and as a result, his two parliamentarians essentially quit. And were and as soon as they quit, they were on the podium, and they quit. And uh, the speaker, knew, I was in the I was in the gallery when that happened. I was when on you, the floor yeah, too. Go, yeah. go ahead, tell and, a story. Well, and. Uh, the two, the parliamentarian, the assistant parliamentarian, were summarily escorted out of the building by troopers without even being able to go to their offices and get their even their personal effects. Yes, um, he won the battle, but that helped and, and out walked. Yeah, oh, uh, <laughs> one of our more um, bellicose members might have had a little uh, too much uh, research, uh, alcohol research. But he got up and he said, members, take your keys. You, you have to have key, uh, turn a key in order to be able to vote on the floor. Uh, uh, take your keys, which would essentially lock your, the, your desk, prevent it from voting. And let's just walk out. And, um, oh, probably 80 of the members walked out, Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. And they really didn't have a place to go. And they really didn't, um, you know, they didn't want to break up a quorum like the Democrats have done on several occasions, but they did want to register a protest. Eventually, uh, the speaker brought in uh, two replacement uh, parliamentarians that he had in waiting that were, uh, shall we say, more malleable. Um, And um, uh, eventually the members came back in. Uh, The session was ultimately completed, but uh, uh, the Speaker Craddock's behavior pretty much locked in uh, the fact that there were at least 20 Republicans that could not put up with this, including some of the most conservative 
um, homophobic, uh, uh, Reagan-esque, um, whatever, you know, silo you want, re- Republican silo you want to put him into, uh, he had lost the credibility with even them. Um, and um, uh, uh, that's, that was the setup going that was into the beginning. The that was the beginning of the end of, right. of that, yeah. Harvey, this has been fascinating. We, we could go on just this subject for, <laughs> for hours, um, but um, I always like to get the backstory from you on <laughs> uh, on what's going on at the Capitol, and particularly going back and talking about some of these some of these uh, you know events that took place during our tenure. That you know they really do uh, you know color the, the you know other sessions and this session. You can look back. You have to look back to see um, you know what could be coming ahead of us. So. Um, but this has been great. This is part one, and um, we're going to bring you back for part two and talk about a few more things. it be my pleasure. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the State House Podcast. Today's show is made possible through a generous donation from my friends at Air Wellness. Air Wellness is one of the most innovative and fastest growing vertically integrated U.S. multi-state cannabis operators. The company's mission is to drive positive impact for their patients, their customers, their employees, and the communities they serve. For more information, please visit airwellness.com. That's A-Y-R wellness.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. In addition, consider subscribing on Apple and Spotify, where you can leave us a five-star review. If you're not already following us on social media, you can find those links below in the show notes. As always, thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next time.